guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What? I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Episode 8, Edwin of Northumbria. So last episode, we talked about the Augustinian mission and the conversion of the kingdoms of Kent and Essex. This week, we will be going further north and looking at the first Christian king of Northumbria. This will be the start of basically a mini-series on Northumbria, which goes from the reign of Edwin up to the final fall of the kingdom to the Vikings. If you'll recall from previous episodes, Northumbria, even though we often think of it as a single kingdom, was actually a confederation of two kingdoms. Those kingdoms being Benicia in the north and Dera in the south. They were both north of the river Humber, hence the name Northumbrian, but they differed in that Bernicia was focused on two royal sites, namely Bamborough and Yevering, while Dera was focused on the city of York. Both kingdoms were essentially anglicised forms of older North British kingdoms that had become to be dominated by an English elite. There is no reason to think that the Bernicians and the Derans understood themselves at this early point as a single people called the Northumbrians. The idea of a unified Northumbrian identity only seems to have really emerged a bit later in the Anglo-Saxon period. In other words, there is reason to think that there was a lot of tension and strife between the nobilities of the two component kingdoms. We can see that, actually, in the early life of Edwin himself. If you recall last episode, I referred to a pagan king of Northumbria called Athelfrith. If you'll remember, Bede used his massacre of the British at Chester as a way to attribute prophetic powers to Augustine. Athelfrith was the ruler of Benicia from 593 on, but around 604, somehow, we don't really know how, he also became the ruler of Dera. Hence why Bede refers to him as Northumbrian, in that he ruled both of the two kingdoms that would eventually become Northumbria. As I said though, exactly how isn't clear. We know that he was married to Edwin's sister, Acha, although there's no way of knowing whether this marriage preceded or occurred after the year 604. As you may have guessed from that, Edwin was the son of the king of Dera, called Allah. Allah is actually the first historical king of Dera. That is, the first king we know isn't just a myth. It seems, though, that Edwin did not succeed his father to the throne, possibly because Northumbria, or specifically Dera, hadn't really established a dynastic principle yet. 
Rather, when Allah died, he was succeeded by a figure who we know really nothing about at all besides a name, a figure called Athelrich. What is very clear is that Athelfrith, upon becoming king of Dera, drove the children of Allah into exile, probably out of fear that they would attempt to rebel against him and replace him to retake their father's kingdom. Thus, when Edwin enters the historical record, he does so as a young man in exile at the court of King Radwald of East Anglia. He seems to have spent some time in Mercia before this, since Bede tells us that his first wife, Quenberg, was daughter of King Churl of Mercia. But we know that Edwin was in East Anglia by the year 616, since it's in that year that Edwin and Radwald killed Athelfrith in a battle along the banks of the River Idol in Nottinghamshire. Radwald is quite an interesting figure in his own right, so it's worth saying a little bit about him here. We know that he was king from 599 to 624. We also know that up until the year 616, he was a sub-king under the rule of Athelbert of Kent. In fact, it's under Athelbert's influence that we're told Radwald actually converted to Christianity, thus becoming the first Christian king of East Anglia. Bede, who, it has to be said, doesn't have a very favourable view of Radwald, tells us that upon returning to East Anglia, he didn't so much abandon his Christianity as renege on its claim of exclusivity. So there's a story that Bede claims to get from a man who had been a boy in Radwald's court, that he had a great temple in which there were two altars, one of which was used by a Christian priest, and the other one was used for sacrifices to the heathen gods. The moral failings that Bede ascribes to Radwald on account of this apostasy may be at the root of the story he gives us, in which he seems to seriously consider a proposition from Athelfrith to murder the young Edwin in return for his friendship. To his credit, Radwald didn't go through with it, but he didn't seem too loyal to Edwin, who he'd taken in and sworn to protect. Radwald does have his own special place in the history of Anglo-Saxon England, particularly in the popular imagination, because it is generally thought that he is the king buried in the famous Sutton Hoo boat burial. So if you've ever seen the glorious helmet that they got from Sutton Hoo, the theory is that that helmet was once worn in the grave by King Radwald. But back to the story. So in 616, Radwald and Edwin killed Athelfrith. 616 seems to have been a year of quite momentous change in terms of Anglo-Saxon power politics. It was also in that year, if you'll recall, that Athelbert and Sebert both died, which led to the apostasies of their respective kingdom, that is, their turning away from Christianity. It seems that Radwald and Edwin took advantage of this power vacuum to assert their own power, with Radwald and then Edwin both becoming, in Bede's eyes, Bretwalders. Following the Battle of the River Idol, Radwald installed Edwin as King of Northumbria, king, note, of both parts of Northumbria. Up until 625, Edwin seems to have ruled as a client king of Radwald, so Radwald was his overlord. This lack of independence certainly didn't stop Edwin from settling some scores, shall we say. So at some point around 616-617, he deposed King Keretic of the Kingdom of Elmet, which was another one of the North British Kingdoms, this one probably located somewhere in Yorkshire. Allegedly, 
Keretic had killed Hererich, who was Edwin's brother, and who we learn from the hagiography of his daughter, Saint Hild, who we'll talk about in a future episode, had gone into exile at Keretic's court, much as Edwin had gone into exile at Radwald's. Seems very possible, then, that Keretic had killed Hererich on Athelfrith's orders, just as Athelfrith had ordered Radwald to do. The removal of Keretic was the end of the Kingdom of Elmet, which from this point on ceased to have any kind of independent identity, and was completely subsumed into the Kingdom of Northumbria. The war against Elmet sets the tone for most of Edwin's time as king, since he seems to have waged an awful lot of wars. We know, for example, that he fought several wars against Dulreada, the kingdom of Gaelic speakers on the Argyll Peninsula in Scotland. Upon defeating the Dulreadans, Northumbria then stretched from the Irish Sea coast to the North Atlantic coast. There is also chronicle and place name evidence to suggest that Edwin also sought to extend his influence on the Isle of Man and onto Anglesey in North Wales. As we'll talk about in a few minutes, this was to ultimately have disastrous consequences for him, but by the logic of early medieval kingship, it means that Edwin was seemingly a very successful king. Edwin didn't just wage wars against the British and the Irish, he also seemingly made his fair few enemies among his fellow Anglo-Saxons. We hear, for example, that the King of Wessex, Quickhelm, attempted to have Edwin murdered at a feast. The result was war between Northumbria and Wessex. Edwin, it seems, had an awful lot of enemies, and this probably came from the reputation he had for waging successful wars. His reputation wasn't just limited to international relations, though. There is also anecdotal evidence that he was remembered among the Northumbrians for his treatment of criminals. Bede alludes to the fear that his reputation inspired in people when he tells us that during Edwin's time, a woman could walk from one coast of Northumbria to the other coast while carrying a newborn baby, and not have to worry at all about brigands or robbers. He also says that Edwin installed bronze drinking cups at the wells in his kingdom, and everybody was so scared of the king's justice that they never dared to use these cups for anything other than their intended purpose. This is almost certainly hyperbolic, and the comment about a woman walking from coast to coast does have some obvious parallels with the idea of the Pax Augusta during the Roman period, but it all also suggests that Edwin had a reputation as a strong and just king. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It isn't, though, as a warlord or a peacemaker that Edwin is remembered. He's remembered primarily through Bede's image of him as the convert king. Edwin's Christianity, at least according to Bede, came from the Augustinian mission. As previously mentioned, he was in exile in the court of Radwald, and Radwald was for many years a sub-king of Athelbert, who was himself converted to Christianity through exposure to Athelbert's kingdom. 
While in exile, we're told, Edwin's life was saved by a member of the Augustinian mission named Paulinus. And it was this same Paulinus who eventually travelled to Northumbria with Edwin's second wife, Athelberg, daughter of Athelbert, to minister to her and to try and win converts among the Northumbrians. The marriage to Athelberg clearly made Edwin into the next likely candidate for conversion, as can be seen in the letter sent to him by Pope Boniface, which exhorts him to accept his wife's Christianity. Yet the image of conversion that Bede gives us suggests that Edwin was extremely indecisive about his decision. At several points, he allegedly pledged to embrace Christianity, first in response to the assassination attempt by Quickhelm in 626, and then following the baptism of his newborn daughter. And even upon resolving to convert, the decision required him to consult his advisors. The story as given in Bede is quite an entertaining one. Two figures in particular stand out. First, there is Coifi, who we're told was Edwin's high priest, and whose reason for converting is mainly, it seems, that if the gods were real, he, as a loyal servant of the gods, would be a lot more successful and wealthy than he actually is. Besides Coifi, there is also an unnamed Aelderman, who gives us one of the most poetic and memorable speeches in all of Bede. It's so poetic and memorable, in fact, that I'm going to quote it for you now. Quote, this is how the present life of man on earth appears to me, in comparison with that time which is unknown to us. You are sitting, feasting with your eldermen and things in wintertime. The fire is burning on the hearth in the middle of the hall, and all inside is warm, while outside the wintry storms of rain and snow are raging. A sparrow flies swiftly through the hall. It enters in at one door and quickly flies out through the other. For the few moments it is inside, the storm and wintry tempest cannot touch it, but after the brief moment of calm, it flits from your sight, so this life of man appears but for a moment. What follows, or indeed what went before, we know not at all. If this new doctrine brings us more certain information, it seems right that we should accept it. End quote. This all ultimately results in Edwin and his nobles' conversion. We are told that they were all baptised, in the year 627, in a small wooden church built in the city of York, near the site of what is now the York Minster. Paulinus was installed as the Bishop of York, and during his episcopacy, a great many churches were built throughout Northumbria, mainly at royal sites. He also undertook the project of rebuilding the small wooden baptismal church in stone as a more permanent construction. We're also told that Paulinus undertook a mission to the kingdom of Lindsay, which was a kingdom on the southern border between Northumbria and Mercia, in what is now Lincolnshire. The kingdom seemingly lost all independence before the beginning of the historical period, but it was still recorded as a distinct entity to some extent, even though from this point on, its history consists entirely of changing hands between Northumbria and Mercia. On the face of it, Paulinus's mission to Northumbria seems to have been very successful. However, the events that followed Edwin's death seem to suggest that it failed to put down particularly deep roots, since at that time Athelberg and Paulinus both decided to flee from Northumbria entirely and return to Kent. But we'll talk about that more in a moment. Edwin's downfall came about mainly as a result 
of his seeming talent at making enemies. If you'll recall, one of his most remarkable achievements was allowing Northumbria to stretch from coast to coast, and his attaining some degree of overlordship in the Isle of Man and Anglesey. The King of Gwynedd at that time was one Cadwathlon ap Cadfan, who had been defeated by Edwin at a battle in Anglesey in 629. After this battle, Cadwathlon seems to have allied himself with King Penda of Mercia, about whom we'll say much more when we get to the period of the Mercian supremacy. For right now, it's enough to point out that Cadwathlon and particularly Penda are basically the main villains of the second book of Bede's ecclesiastical history. Penda, because he was a resolutely pagan king, and Cadwathlon, because he was a Christian who nevertheless allied himself with a pagan. The pair attacked Edwin in 632-633, to and killed him at the Battle of Hatfield Chase. At his death, Northumbria once again split into two kingdoms, Osric ruling Dera, while Eanfrith ruled Bernicia. They are both very obscure figures, mainly because they only ruled for about a year each, but we are told that they both reverted to paganism. They were both also quickly killed by Cadwathlon, who was himself killed soon after by Oswald, their successor and king of a unified Northumbria. Edwin, both on account of his being a convert and on his apparent martyrdom at the hands of a pagan, was fairly quickly canonised as a saint. His head, we are told, was taken to the church in York where he was baptised and kept there in a sanctuary for many years. But Edwin's reputation has always been a somewhat complicated one. Bede, while giving us a lot of information about him and certainly being very pro-Edwin, was nevertheless seemingly somewhat uncomfortable with his apparent indecisiveness in converting to Christianity. Edwin really has always been significantly overshadowed by Oswald, who, as we will see in the next episode, was very quickly and very enthusiastically taken up as a saint after his death. As noted, Edwin's conversion of Northumbria seems to have unravelled fairly quickly, with Paulinus and Athelberg both returning to Kent. Paulinus subsequently became Bishop of Rochester. When Oswald became king, he undertook essentially a reconversion of Northumbria but we will talk about that in much more detail in the next episode. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. If you have, and if you've enjoyed previous episodes, once again, I'd like to ask that you leave a positive review, uh, five stars or a like, wherever you found it, so that it can help us to get a bit more exposure. Once again, though, I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and this has been the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.